0: Hi, and welcome to the I Jerry Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Levinson, a psychiatrist at McMaster University. And along with geriatrician Dr. Richard Stramko and other healthcare experts, we're looking to help those affected by a dementia diagnosis. This includes patients and caregivers, as well as family and friends. We understand that a diagnosis of dementia can sometimes feel scary and confusing, this podcast, along with the rest of the Igeri Care initiative, was created in order to help relieve some of the stress that comes with a diagnosis. This series will cover a broad range of topics relating to dementia and will look to provide answers to many of your questions. Before we get into the discussion, I want to note that this episode was initially recorded on January twenty third, 2019 and reviews how dementia is diagnosed Including some of the symptoms of dementia, typical investigations, and how to prepare to discuss concerns with your loved one's healthcare team. Good afternoon and welcome to our fifth iJerryCare live event. Uh, iJerryCare.ca is an educational resource for caregivers of people with dementia. Uh, my name is Dr. Anthony Levinson, I'm a psychiatrist here at McMaster University and I'm here today with Dr. Richard Stramko, a geriatrician, co-founder of iGeriCare. Um, today we will be talking about uh, the basics of a diagnosis of dementia. Uh, we'll be on the air live for 45 minutes. You can submit your questions through either Facebook or through the iGeriCare.ca slash events page. And we'll try in the 45 minutes to cover uh, as many of your questions as possible. Um, just a reminder, you can keep going throughout the event. If we don't have time to answer some of the questions during the live event, uh, sometimes uh, we can convince Dr. Stramco to stay behind for a few minutes and we'll record those and, and put it up as a Uh, an extra auxiliary uh, video. We do record these, and so if you don't catch all of the live session today, uh, you'll be able to watch the video on the website. Usually takes us a couple of days to get that set up, uh, but probably uh, by next week uh, we'll have the recording of this session. So uh, why don't we jump right into some basics around uh, getting a diagnosis of dementia. Uh, Most people would probably see their primary care team, either a family physician uh, or a nurse practitioner, and um, maybe walk through, Dr. Stramko, what somebody could expect from, from that uh, appointment where there's maybe an assessment with a view to a diagnosis
1: of dementia. Sure. Um, I think the first thing that would happen would be asking questions. So usually a primary care physician would be um, more knowledgeable about what's been happening to the patient and their medical history and things of that nature, but they'd want to qualify what's happening with the cognitive changes. So we mentioned um, the cognitive domains uh, quite extensively in lesson one, what is dementia? So I'd invite you guys to go to that lesson and review it, but basically the physician would start asking questions about your memory. So are you having difficulties uh, remembering conversations or would you be repeating questions? Would you have difficulties making it to appointments on time? They might ask about your ability to do uh, processing of more complicated tasks, like doing your finances and filing your taxes, being able to cook complex meals. And then other questions about your ability to um, perform language functions, so your speaking and reading and writing, your ability to navigate in uh, certain environments, so your visuospatial spatial function and your ability to to perceive the environment around you, and the different social cognitive uh, functions so do you display empathy and warmth and normal personal rela- interpersonal relationships, or are you displaying abnormal behaviors kind of disinhibited behaviors where you'd be doing inappropriate things or uh,
0: like a change in personality exactly so, yeah so the one of the first steps and and depending on how well the the family physician or nurse practitioner uh knows the patient but one of the first steps is is really asking mm-hmm. questions about what's been going on are there specific concerns around these various aspects of thinking memory feeling and and cognition And um, after the history part of things, Mm -hmm. and and actually, uh, many family physicians or nurse practitioners would, it's incredibly valuable for you, the caregiver, to accompany the patient for this type of uh, assessment because Mm -hmm. uh, often the person who's having the problems may not fully be aware of all of the challenges that they're having, but um, it's really important for somebody who knows the person and is a a reliable historian they have a lot to add in that in that assessment visit uh, because they they may be aware of uh, some of the other challenges that are happening
1: and some of the other aspects about the history as you call it which is gathering a lot of the information about the patient if the primary care physician doesn't know a lot about that patient they would certainly want to know everything about the past medical history all the medical issues they've had because that can contribute to brain damage, so whether they've had head trauma or previous infections in the brain. They'd also want to know a comprehensive list of medications, because there are many medications that can impair your Mm -hmm. uh, brain function. So For example, pain medications, sleep medications, medications used to treat depression, and a whole host of other conditions. They'd also want to know things about your alcohol consumption, because that can certainly contribute, your smoking history, and how that can cause damage to small blood vessels in the brain or increase your risk of stroke. And then family history. So there are some types of dementias that run uh, in a genetic fashion through certain families. And so you'd wanna know all about those things to get a comprehensive understanding of what the risks are. So not only what's happening in terms of the symptoms that people are experiencing day to day, but also all of the background information that can help you narrow down a diagnosis.
0: That's why I say sometimes it may take more than one visit uh, to sort through uh, to yeah. sort through this.
1: So, and I think we've got the luxury of time as a psychiatrist, yeah. and especially as a geriatrician, but the primary care physician, as you say, might not be able to get through it because they have different time allotments—maybe 15 or 20 minutes—versus the hour, hour and 15 minutes that we may have.
0: So, um, often the next part in an assessment is a physical examination, mm-hmm. and uh, what are some of the things that uh, the primary care practitioner might be looking for on uh, physical, uh, physical examination in the assessment for dementia?
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the biggest thing would be a, a neurologic examination, which allows a physician to look at how the brain is functioning and how the spinal cord, nerves, and muscles all function together. If there's damage to the brain, then you can pick up a lot based on the general neurologic examination. The other side of it is that different types of dementia will present differently on the physical examination. For example, Alzheimer's, usually there's just memory issues or other cognitive complaints with very little shown on the physical examination. But something else like Parkinson's disease dementia will show people having slow movement and potentially some form of Rest tremor or a different type of tremor. So they look differently on physical examination. It allows you to exclude, not completely, but decrease the likelihood of having uh, larger problems with the brain. And then, on the other hand, it allows you to narrow down the diagnosis and be more specific with the type of dementia the person may be dealing with. And I think this sort
0: of goes back to one of the key points that we've emphasized that uh, dementia is a an umbrella term that uh, encompasses several different causes of dementia. Um, some of the most common causes are what we call degenerative or progressive diseases, things like alzheimer's disease or Vascular dementia. So part of the assessment of dementia is to make sure that there isn't something else that's accounting for the symptoms. Does you know is somebody having a medication side effect? Is somebody um, you know abusing substances, <clears throat> or uh, do they have a, an acute illness like a, a flu or mm-hmm. a urinary tract infection? Um, but the other part of it is if somebody does have a dementia. Can you, through asking these questions and doing physical exam and other tests, can you uh, distinguish what the most likely cause is of the dementia, so.
1: I, th- I think that's a great point and just, you know, the neurologic exam is one side of it and then there's also a general physical examination. For example, if somebody had heart failure and they had low blood oxygen levels, they're not getting enough oxygen to their brain and they may appear as though they have a cognitive problem or they do have a cognitive problem, but it's caused by low oxygen levels. If you treat their heart failure and restore normal oxygen levels, their brain function may improve, and thus they don't actually have a dementia, have cognitive problems related to a medical illness, which is treatable. Yeah,
0: and that's always one of the things that you're looking for in the assessment is, yeah. are there treatable or reversible uh, medical conditions that, um, uh, or psychiatric conditions like severe depression, where you could help to restore somebody's cognitive function by treating mm-hmm. that condition. Um, if we, we go back to some of the things, we've actually talked a little bit about some of the more common types of dementia and um, Alzheimer's disease is one of the more common ones and, and there, a lot of the diagnosis is through the history of mm-hmm. a, a slowly progressive, slow deterioration in, in memory and in language and some of those other functions and characteristically, the physical examination mm-hmm. does not necessarily reveal any other obvious neurologic um, problems. We've talked a bit about vascular dementia, and that might be a setting where somebody's perhaps had evidence of a stroke in the past, so mm-hmm. the, the physical or the neurological exam may reveal some of the, the damage from the stroke, mm-hmm. in addition to uh, some of the other cognitive changes that we've mentioned. Uh, you mentioned Parkinson's disease dementia, where you know there's most likely already a diagnosis mm-hmm. of Parkinson's disease for you know, a year or two before the onset of some of the cognitive symptoms of dementia. Um, any other common types of dementia that
1: uh, you think are worth mentioning, and and some of how they might be diagnosed? Yeah. So, um, frontotemporal dementia is another one, um, and it's also an umbrella term. Not to make it too complicated, but the behavioral variant or front of of frontotemporal dementia really presents with more behavior changes, less so the memory uh, complaints that somebody with Alzheimer's may have, and um, a big change in interpersonal warmth. So they appear to be disconnected or not caring as much about their loved ones. They may obsess or ruminate about certain things, so eating the same meal at the same time every single day. And they may say inappropriate or hurtful things that A usual person would be able to filter out in their day-to-day, but they they may just say it because of damage to the frontal lobe. So personality changes, sometimes uh, younger onset. Absolutely. So, you know, in some series, almost as common as Alzheimer's disease in a younger patient population, so for those under the age of 65, and certainly the likelihood decreases as you get older in age with respect to the presentation of dementia. And we may talk in more
0: <coughs> detail about some of the different types of dementia depending on the questions that mm-hmm. come in, uh, but one of our other lessons, lesson 5 on iJerrycare.ca, also has a bit more information and detail about some of the more uh, common types of dementia. Um, so after asking questions to try and understand the, the mm-hmm. history or the progression of the symptoms and doing a physical exam to maybe exclude other causes of memory problems or maybe to reaffirm that there might mm-hmm. be, you know, vascular issues. Um, are there any other uh, things that come next in terms of particular types of investigations, uh, lab tests, other things that uh, that you would comment on?
1: Absolutely. So um, as we were talking about in the physical examination, looking for medical causes that may be reversible. So um, a complete blood count is something that's really common. Somebody may have a really low level of The red blood cells and not have appropriate oxygen levels. People may have um, abnormalities in their electrolyte levels, so if sodium's uh, abnormal or their calcium levels are off, then this can also mimic a dementia. People that have organ failure, so uh, people that have chronic kidney disease or chronic liver disease where you can't filter out the toxins, for lack of a better word, from your body can also present with cognitive problems. And then Commonly the ones that we would see in the dementia paradigm would be thyroid function testing, so either high or low thyroid function can cause cognitive problems, uh, and a vitamin B12 uh, deficiency as well.
0: So for the most part, the uh, blood work or laboratory investigations are really to rule out Mm -hmm. some of these other medical causes and to see if there's something reversible like thyroid or B12 that might be. Uh, deficient and might be uh, reversible but um, probably important to highlight that in most cases it's not like you can do a blood test that says yes it's Alzheimer's disease dementia or vascular dementia so um, really and and one of the other terms that I think sometimes people who do get a diagnosis they get confused their their doctor may say well you you have probable or possible mm-hmm. um, Alzheimer's dementia um, and and the reality is that that's probably in in the person's lifetime that's the best that we get yeah. is is you know we think based on this the history or the story the physical exam the lab tests um, brain imaging which we'll mm-hmm. talk about in a second uh, but you know m- mostly we don't have definitive tools right now to make. Uh, a definite diagnosis.
1: Yeah, I think that's a source of frustration for many of the patients that we see. There are so many conditions where you can go and get Mm -hmm. a lab test or get uh, an imaging test done, and it's more definitive. I I think we're pretty good with what we have now uh, for certain types of dementia. And then I think another thing to mention, not to go too far down the lab investigation point of view, but if somebody's progressing quite rapidly or they have you know, different patterns to their neurologic examination or they have a family history, um, there may be additional tests that right. are or ordered. Um, so, you know, don't be surprised if things don't look completely uh, as we're outlining them yeah. now. Um, there may be an escalation in investigation if. Uh, good answers are not found for you, or yeah, or
0: un- unusual or yep. atypical presentations. Very yeah. young people, family.
1: But yeah. let's let's jump into some questions because
0: I think we'll sure. cover some of the other topics with that. So um, here's a good question: Does an MRI ever show any signs of dementia? Mm-hmm. Um, and the follow-up is uh, curious about whether there's any physical signs or if is it is it structural signs, or is it just something related to the circuit or the, the function in the brain?
1: So. Yeah. Um, so an MRI uh, can definitely be ordered. And uh, we talked about the different causes of dementia. So toxic proteins can impact the brain in certain specific areas uh, earlier uh, than, than other areas. So for instance, an MRI for somebody that has Alzheimer's disease may show shrinkage in lobes called the temporal lobes or in and around an area called the hippocampus. There's a lot of other areas that are impacted early, which we won't get into Mm. because it's more complex um, brain anatomy, but you will be able to see it in certain patients and say, this looks much more like somebody that has Alzheimer's because there's shrinkage in the areas that Alzheimer's is most likely to impact.
0: So a CT scan of the brain And an MRI scan of the brain are really about um, visualizing structures. Uh, They don't really tell you about the function or the the signaling or the circuitry, but they can tell you if there are structural issues Mm -hmm. there. And the most common ones that we would see on a CT or an MRI that might... Um, you know, help to confirm a diagnosis of dementia would be uh, shrinkage or atrophy, which is common in several of the dementias, especially Alzheimer's. Uh, we would also potentially see evidence of multiple small strokes or a large stroke in the setting of vascular dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a. I just want to show a couple of, of images. We we don't have a lot of uh, detailed ones, uh, but. This shows on on this side uh, a kind of a healthy appearing brain uh, what it would look like and then in in severe alzheimer 's disease, you can see, see that shrinkage or atrophy, especially in some of the areas that are particularly involved in in memory and you can see that Some of the areas where there's normally fluid circulating actually become kind of larger because of cell death in in those areas. And that's what you were talking about Mm -hmm. with the toxic protein. This is an example of uh, a CT scan of a brain. And I don't have a normal one for comparison, but some of the things that we were showing on the other picture, you can see these, these areas which have the fluid in the brain, the cerebral spinal fluid, they're much, much larger because of the shrinkage or atrophy. And similarly, there's fluid in these spaces. In the healthy brain, uh, those areas would be filled with healthy brain tissue. Uh, but one of the things that we can see with MRI or CT is if there's a lot of shrinkage or atrophy, we can see some of these types of changes.
1: So, and we talk, We're talking a little bit about the need for a CT scan or an MRI. And... If things are a very typical presentation, you're an older adult that's had a slow and gradual change over time in your short-term memory with no evidence of lab abnormalities and no problems with your physical examination, your doctor may not order any neuroimaging or a CT scan or an MRI. Um, Whereas if there's any changes or problems, then um, uh, they will order one. If it's atypical, so if something's happened very quickly or you can detect abnormalities on the neurologic examination, um, then certainly it's indicated. And the CAT scan or CT scan is usually the first step. It's a little bit more of a general test. It can tell you, as Dr. Levinson has uh, said, that the small strokes or uh, larger strokes, whereas it might not pick up any atrophy patterns early in the course of the disease, yeah. the disease. And so an MRI might be indicated in those situations. If you're looking for specific, Um, atrophy patterns and then the MRI also uh, provides different information so if there's more subtle inflammation from in the brain from other conditions it can pick up on things like that so the MRI will give you a lot more information and a lot more much more detailed pictures absolutely
0: and actually that ties in with um, the this next question um, this is a person who is waiting for an MRI to investigate um, multiple sclerosis uh, or MS. And uh, this person states, had problems with my memory for many, many years, but the last couple of years um, reports hearing things and seeing things, and just found out that the sleeping pills that they've been taking for the last six or seven months uh, have some kind of link to dementia. Uh, So uh, they're wondering, any advice on questions that they should ask their doctor?
1: Sure. Um, So I'd probably focus on the uh, factors that are most easily reversible, which would be the medications first, oftentimes people can, have, can hear things or have hallucinations if they're on a medication uh, for sleep. And so um, the question I would ask is, is the medication that this particular person is on associated with hearing things or uh, cognitive impairment? And if it is, can that medication be decreased in dose if it's been effective for them or eliminated completely over time, making sure that they don't have symptoms of withdrawal Um, uh, which needs to be considered for certain medications. And then could they be substituted on something else Mm -hmm. for sleep if sleep is also a problem? And then also addressing uh, sleep hygiene. So a lot of times people will just go to a sleeping pill um, as a first response if they're having challenges sleeping. And maybe it's the TV that they're watching or it's the caffeine that they're having late in the day. So sometimes people can get off sleeping pills altogether if they implement the right sleep hygiene. The um, MS question is very interesting because uh, MS is an inflammatory disease in the brain that can cause um, a, a relapsing course, so it comes and goes, but it can also cause permanent damage to the brain as well. And so people, may, it's, it's common for people to experience uh, cognitive problems if they have the MS.
0: I'd say um, experiences like... He, hearing things or seeing things are a bit less common. yeah, and I think uh, you know in terms of asking questions, it might be bringing more information to your doctor's attention, uh, highlighting the timing of some of the uh, mm-hmm. these experiences. And uh, it does sound like the MRI scan might be uh, very helpful because um, you know if people are experiencing uh, hearing things, seeing things, there there yeah. can be changes to the brain that um, might be responsible for that as well.
1: I think think you're you're definitely right. Um, And then it may be a question of getting additional physicians involved as well. So if the sleep medication change um, doesn't actually improve the hearing things or seeing things, and you go and see a a neurologist uh, who specializes in MS and they think it's not likely for the changes that you're experiencing to be related to the MS, then you might also want to get other doctors, such as Dr. Levinson, involved um, from a psychiatric point of view for assessment, and then also um, getting objective cognitive testing or um, brain testing done to to document exactly what's happening with respect to um, cognitive uh, dysfunction.
0: Can you say a little bit, one of the other comments is um, somebody who's seeing a lot of alcohol-induced dementia in long-term care. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you and I can say a little bit about uh, alcohol-induced dementia.
1: Sure. Um, it's, I find this one a little bit more of a tough one because alcohol definitely is um, uh, toxic to nerve cells, both the peripheral nerves that you have as well as your brain. And there are specific syndromes that people experience. So one of them is called Wernicke's, where you have low thiamine, commonly associated with alcohol intake, people may have difficulties with uh, coordinating their limbs, you may be able to see certain problems with their eye function, um, and they're confused as well. And so treating that may actually reverse the cause of the cognitive impairment that they have. Other times, there's a syndrome called Korsakoff's, where people will start making up uh, stories or confabulating. So they're talking about things that have never happened or aren't true and will just make things up as though they're commonplace and they've definitely occurred.
0: It's quite a can be quite a severe form of dementia because in in that type of alcohol syndrome, Mm -hmm. you actually lose the ability to make new memories. So uh, you might have what seems like a a normal interaction and -hmm. and then five, ten minutes later the person may have no recall of what transpired. So um, I would say alcohol-related uh, dementias mm-hmm. are probably underdiagnosed or appreciated because alcohol issues are quite common. And uh, I guess the other thing that we sometimes see, in addition to those ones, there's sort of the direct toxicity from mm-hmm. long, long-term alcohol use. Uh, we also see people who develop... Uh, liver disease and Mm -hmm. liver failure and liver disease can also be a cause of confusion and cognitive impairment. And uh, the other thing about people with um, uh, chronic alcohol use is their brain may shrink a little bit Mm -hmm. and they're also more prone to falls uh, or head injuries because of what you said. So uh, often you see maybe a combination of somebody who's uh, not only sustained some uh, cognitive changes and brain damage mm-hmm. from the alcohol, but they may also have uh, put themselves in situations where they've injured their head or fallen, and uh, so there's a lot of different reasons why they they may have cognitive impairment.
1: And I think the reason why it's particularly challenging, I don't know what your experience is um, with the global type of damage. You know, they may also have small blood vessel damage on their imaging because they could smoke or they have high yeah. blood pressure. And there's nothing to say that people that drink uh, and have had these problems don't get Alzheimer's as well. So there's a lot of overlap in these situations. And sometimes it's challenging to to tease apart. But like most situations, if they're still drinking, right, the other thing is intoxication. So try and reduce or eliminate the alcohol that they are consuming. If there is any evidence of thiamine deficiency causing Wernicke's or Korsakoff's, treat that and then you're kind of back to your baseline of treating all other possibilities. I think
0: we, we probably um, underestimate alcohol <clears> uh, <throat> issues in older adults too, so.
1: And I think it brings, back, you know, brings us back to the point where you were talking about having family provide collateral. Yeah. There's so many patients that I've seen that say, hey, I don't have any problems with alcohol consumption, but then you talk to their family members yeah. who are you know, paying the bills and yes, yeah. there's definitely problems.
0: Before we move on to the rest of the Q&A portion of the show, I'd just like to take a few moments to tell everyone a little bit more about the iJerryCare.ca website. Here you can find a number of lessons which cover a range of topics from the basics of understanding dementia, management options, brain health, and caregiver wellness to name a few. In addition to these lessons, you'll also have access to our live event video recordings, as well as email-based learning options. We're constantly looking to raise awareness about iJerryCare, develop new educational materials, and maintain this as a free resource for caregivers. If you'd like to help, you can support our program by clicking on the Donate button on the top right portion of our website. 100% of your donation goes to iJerryCare. Now, with that out of the way, let's get back to the show. So uh, here's another question on um, mixed dementia, and we mm-hmm. should maybe explain that, mixed dementia and vascular dementia. And uh, the, the person's noting that those may often be misdiagnosed. And what would be the best way for the patient and family to ensure that the diagnostic process was accurate and addressed all steps?
1: hmm Um, I think it's a great question and brings us back to what you were saying in terms of we don't have perfect science. There's no blood test um, or there's no imaging test where you can definitively diagnose it, but it's a sense that you get. So if somebody has really severe small blood vessel disease on their brain, uh, on imaging, and they're experiencing some really profound executive function problems, then that would suggest that there's some element to small blood vessel disease damage causing cognitive impairment. Generally, though, that doesn't cause very um, significant short-term memory problems, and some uh, of these can be teased out on cognitive testing, but if you find that someone's got really short-term bad short-term memory problems or potentially MRI evidence of um, shrinkage or atrophy in areas known to cause Alzheimer's, and they have evidence of old strokes multiple small strokes or microvascular disease then you'd say in that situation that they'd have a mixed dementia
0: so i think this this was a bit of a two-parter and i'm going to address that first question and this one it was sort of can you touch on the challenges around getting a proper diagnosis in Northern or rural communities, and specifically where people don't necessarily have a regular physician or having to go to multiple walk-in clinics for help. And I think this might highlight um, some of the things that we've been saying already that um, you know you you should expect a uh, sort of proper diagnosis. And there are kind of standards in Ontario. We have you know Health Quality Ontario standards around dementia care. There are national guidelines for healthcare providers, so sort of a best practice, best evidence consensus that kind of says, you know, you should be asked these kinds of questions to get a sense of timeline. You should have uh, other causes of cognitive impairment, reversible ones, investigated and ruled out. Um, In certain circumstances, if there's still uncertainty about what's going on, uh, brain imaging may be helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are other sort of bedside tests, which we'll maybe talk about later if the other questions come up. Things like uh, the mini mental status exam or or the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, that you might expect. And if those suggest dementia, because those are just screening tools, then there might be other follow-up tests. I think it is always a challenge. I would say there are a lot of areas that are underserviced. I would say even in Uh, resource-rich locations. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we don't necessarily uh, know whether people are getting uh, all of the sort of proper steps. But I I think having a good sense and advocating for yourself uh, and then uh, if they're are challenges in getting access to uh, to primary care definitive diagnosis? There may be ways in which you could be sent to a specialist, whether the specialist flies in or whether you may have to you know go to a a, a center for it. Mm-hmm. But um, especially if there's uncertainties, uh, the implications of of you know somebody missing a potentially reversible cause uh, could be could be quite serious. So I think it's worth Advocating from that standpoint,
1: I think it's uh, worthwhile to mention that uh, the Alzheimer's Society does have a checklist of things that you're able to bring in. So you can find this on the Alzheimer's Society uh, website, and we'll be posting a link to it as well. Um, But the more information you can bring forward and advocate, as Dr. Levinson was saying, um, then the easier it will be for the clinician to do that. Yeah, especially
0: if the if the the physician doesn't necessarily have a lot of the background or uh, know you that well. So. Um, question from Hamilton, a brain SPECT has been ordered for my father. What will that
1: show? Um, so this gets into the more complicated or nuanced imaging that we can order. In. A SPECT really shows um, blood flow throughout the brain. So if there's death to certain parts of the brain, then you can expect blood flow to be um, reduced to that area of the brain. Uh, other imaging would be a PET scan or positron emission uh, tomography, and that shows um, uh, brain metabolism. So if certain parts of the brain are being damaged by a toxic protein or small blood vessel disease, then the metabolism in that area of the brain will be um, interrupted. So the, the SPECT might show, let's say if they had frontotemporal dementia, uh, low blood flow to the front part of the brain, if they had alzheimer's disease um, you might show low blood flow to the medial temporal lobes or the hippocampus and the, these
0: are you know where, where we were talking about uh, ct scan and mri maybe you know not always done but more frequently done as part of the assessment of the structures of the brain uh, these types of studies are are getting at mm-hmm. function a little bit more because Absolutely. they're looking at the, the metabolism. This might be an example of a normal one and you know it's sort of a heat map where the red colors sort of are showing uh, a very active brain taking up lots of glucose often is, is the molecule that people look at on these functional scans. So you can see there's a lot of activity happening kind of all over the brain especially in the front part. Here's, here's an example of somebody uh, where There's just not a lot of activity. These areas that were red before showing a lot of take up. This is kind of an example of what you might see if if you're wondering about, you know, does this person have a frontal lobe dementia and there's less Mm -hmm. activity there. So, uh, again, not too commonly done, but I suspect with the SPECT, they might be looking for something like that. Uh, That's probably the condition it might be ordered in.
1: The challenge, um, I think a challenge just to be, to bring that up with uh, these additional tests is that sometimes it won't actually change how we manage the disease, it won't change medications we prescribe, it won't change further investigations, but occasionally in in certain circumstances it would, so you know, let's say somebody's presenting with frontotemporal dementia symptoms, you want to be more specific about that, you get a SPECT scan and it really clinches the diagnosis or It doesn't clinch but increases the likelihood significantly based on the symptoms and the story you've got the physical examination and now the imaging there are you know certain genetic tests you might want to order in that population and refer them to a behavioral neurologist and you know genetic counselor but it it,
0: it, um, you know again it may not be available in all centers but it it sort of moves the needle from we think this is what's going on to this is probably
1: What's going on? And I would caution that most often it's not required to make an appropriate diagnosis. It's um, more of a a limited use case. So,
0: a couple of more questions about uh, alcohol and uh, Korsakoff. Could the Korsakoff show up with stroke survivors too? And how much alcohol use is too much for the elderly with regards to uh, Wernicke Korsakoff syndrome? Um, I can tell you with, with stroke uh, you can actually get a Korsakoff syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's um, a little bit unusual because normally it means that you've had um, a small stroke to a very specific part of the brain called the hippocampus that's involved in memory. And It, it might mean that you've actually had a small stroke on both sides to, to both hippocampi, but it, it's definitely, it definitely can happen even if it's fairly rare. Um, The other question about how much alcohol use is too much for the elderly. You know, Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome is, I don't want to say it's very rare, but it usually occurs in people who are fairly heavy alcohol users Mm -hmm. and usually uh, heavy use over time and the alcohol actually interferes with the um, metabolism of that vitamin, uh, the thiamine vitamin. Mm-hmm. And um, it's thought that the thiamine deficiency is what really causes that Wernicke's. So there's no easy answer to it, but it's probably a lot. I'd say um, the more common scenario that we might see with alcohol is somebody who has another type of dementia. And, you know, whereas in the past, before their dementia, when they were young, they could maybe tolerate a couple of drinks no problem now their, their tolerance for alcohol uh, is much less. So somebody with dementia may appear quite a bit more confused after only one drink, potentially.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know if there are any other things. about well, I,
1: I think that even in cognitively normal people, uh, the sensitivity to alcohol um, increases significantly as we age. Our, our body composition changes. Our liver's ability to deal with the alcohol diminishes. So everybody gets to be more sensitive. I think I try and uh, keep my patients to one standard drink. So one, you know, five ounce glass of wine, a beer or standard, um, you know, one ounce of uh, a harder liquor, less than that a day, one or less than that a day. There are some guidelines which suggest you take more. You can individualize it to somebody if they're not having any cognitive problems. And that's something that really improves their quality of life or something that's Mm -hmm. been part of their culture, then I don't push it too much. But Certainly, the more you can limit alcohol intake, the better for a whole host of different reasons.
0: So um, here's another comment. Uh, I didn't realize that severe physical problems can occur. My cousin's 74 and has a real problem with control of her hands. She's had dementia for almost three years now. Uh, maybe this is worth, uh, again, highlighting, um, which, the, depending on the type of dementia, there, there could be more Uh, other physical issues or like motor control or hand control problems.
1: Right, and I I think probably, it's hard to comment specifically without doing a full assessment yourself, but problems with controlling the hands can be a few things. I think the most common one we would see would be Parkinson's disease dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies, both of which can have a tremor where the hand shakes, both at rest or while trying to perform certain activities. You can get muscle rigidity where um, it's actually your muscles become more stiff or they're harder to move, and so there may be some cogwheeling rigidity or lead pipe rigidity where people can't move their hands as quickly as they uh, would like. And they may
0: have problems uh, initiating movements too. Yeah. So it seems like it's a problem with the hands, but actually it does relate more to the brain's control
1: of, of movement. Absolutely, yeah. um, and then slowness of movement or bradykinesia. Is where people uh, can't move their hands or limbs or body as quickly as they would like and have some problems with coordinating. So, you know, an example would be I can tap my finger like this quite easily. I can open and close my hand quite easily without any problems. People with Parkinsonism as an effect of their dementia may look like this and may have very slow, uncontrolled or uh, dysrhythmic or abnormal rhythm to their hand movements. Um, where that comes in, and, and
0: again, back to the what you might expect from the assessment. Yeah. Um, if if a physician is maybe suspecting something like that, or you know you're complaining about some of those challenges, there may be some other examination maneuvers like testing of exactly. movements and things like Another that.
1: Another common thing I would say, if it's a difficulty with control of the hands or clumsiness of the hands, would be something called apraxia, where people's strength is intact and their sensation and ability to move but they've kind of lost the motor program to coordinate so that that
0: i would say is probably the most likely thing so somebody has uh, this this problem doing things that were normally Mm. smooth brushing teeth combing hair using a telephone even uh, waving uh, opening a jar so things that they're they're actually more cognitively complex, yeah. but because we do them automatically throughout most of our life, we sort of forget that they involve several steps. And so what happens with dementia and this type of apraxia is it, um, it affects the brain's ability to mm-hmm. coordinate those movements. So it looks like, oh, they can't use their hands, they're having trouble dressing or mm-hmm. using a fork, but it, it again, it relates more to the, to the brain damage around that. Um, and, and visual spatial changes.
1: Too. Absolutely, and yeah. you know, an example of that on assessment, because we're talking about that, was you know asking somebody to brush their teeth and pretend as though they're holding a yeah. toothbrush. A normal person would grab it like this and, and do this. I know we all use electric toothbrushes <laughs> more commonly these <laughs> days, um, but somebody who may have severe apraxia may hold their hand at an abnormal angle like this or just put out their finger. So it, yeah. it looks really uh, abnormal. Yeah. Um,
0: they, can we comment a little bit? Uh, are there significant differences between different ethnicities, diet, and geography, as some research indicates Asian cultures have lower rates of dementia? Any comments on on variability across ethnicities? There's a few different questions in there, I guess, about diet, geography, ethnicity.
1: Yes. And... Um I'm not the most qualified person to do to comment on all of these things because um, it's more of an epidemiological mm. kind of answer. But you know, for for instance, um, the Mediterranean diet. We've talked about this yeah. previ- previously, but that's a diet that's been associated with improved cognitive function, lower likelihood of having heart disease, lower likelihood of having stroke, and actually, if people transition to a Mediterranean diet when they have mild cognitive problems, can actually improve slightly. Um, their cognitive function so that would be an example of a different diet that actually does impact cognitive function a lot of the other changes between cultures and ethnicities um, for the most part um, seem as though they're related to the risk of vascular damage mm. um, so that would be the other side of it and there are you know we're always trying to find superfoods that may be able to help out with this and potentially that can can be there but I'm not the most qualified person to be honest, but we can um, maybe do a little bit of research in the background and post a a better answer to that question. A few
0: other questions. How common is vitamin B12 deficiency causing
1: dementia? I don't think it's that common uh, in in the practice that we see. Vitamin B12 deficiency is a lot more common than um, vitamin B12 deficiency causing dementia. There's a bunch of signs, not just dementia, but having problems with your nerves peripherally, and then having challenges in your spinal cord, having a beefy red tongue. When all of those things come together and you treat the vitamin B12 deficiency that you detect in the blood, then it's much more likely. I would say the more common thing that happens is somebody has dementia, they're not eating as much, and they have a B12 deficiency. We treat the B12 deficiency and nothing happens to the dementia. Um, but rarely there are cases of not just dementia but other neurologic presentations where you do treat the B12 deficiency and it does get better. But that's a very uncommon occurrence. I think
0: it it might be an important contributor uh, Mm -hmm. to uh, nerve, brain, and psychiatric symptoms as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's definitely worth in doing the investigation because vitamin b12 deficiency is relatively common but yes as the sort of sole uh, cause and a reversible mm-hmm. cause of dementia that would be a bit more rare so uh here's another uh i've had memory tests done every year for the last five or six years each year the scores were lower last one was 26 so i'm not sure whether it's a a mini mental or a mocha we'll talk about that in a minute mm-hmm. the mri shows everything is normal i was diagnosed with the onset of alzheimer's i'm on a medication to slow the progression of the disease how accurate
1: are these tests mm-hmm. well um the tests aren't uh the be-all and end-all they're a screening tests, and they add information to the overall picture but the historical features and the tests that you do, so the Mini Mental State Examination or the MOCA, um, as well as the imaging, you kind of put them all together. 26, if it's the MOCA, is an excellent score, and I I would kind of go back to the drawing board if that was the case. So I'd assume it would be the Mini Mental State Mm -hmm. Examination. And so even then, that's a pretty good score, so I would think that this patient is having problems functioning in their day-to-day life.
0: Certain factors sort of, again, it does become a, it depends, people who may have a very high level of function Mm -hmm. throughout their life and maybe be very well educated, you know, even a subtle drop in the score on something like the mini mental state exam, which is that screening tool, could indicate mild cognitive impairment or early dementia. If you're uncertain, you know this is one of the settings where maybe getting another opinion or even doing more detailed uh, neuropsychological tests. So mm-hmm. the the screening ones that are often done in the family doctor's office are um, are you know fairly quick and practical types of screens. But uh, if if we have concerns or we feel like there we want more information assessed for, we we can often refer people for more detailed neuropsychological testing, and that really looks at um, it's much more comprehensive. It's kind of exhausting. It can take uh, right. you know, two half days, and not everybody can can kind of fully participate. But um,
1: And there are situations where the testing and the rest of the, the history don't add up, but I am perplexed that that score is that high, and there is a diagnosis of, of dementia on board, especially Alzheimer's, because the mini-mental state examination focuses on short-term memory the most likely impairment that you have in Alzheimer's disease is problems with episodic memory and nearly half the test is devoted to yeah. that. So I would be cautious about this one as well. And then just to note that there's no medication that actually slows the progression of the disease at this point. It's just really uh, trying to boost your cognitive function in the likely event of having Alzheimer's disease. So just the wording I think is mm. careful. Um, we need to be careful about and managing expectations around what the medication is accomplishing. It's boosting your cognition and maybe helping you to function a bit better, but it's not really slowing or changing the progression. It's not affecting the, the progression. It's itself. not impacting yeah. the brain and the toxic proteins involved.
0: We we've, we've, I thank everybody so much for submitting questions. We're going to have to wrap up soon, but I'm going to try and do these last two uh, that have been sent in, uh, even if we run a, a couple minutes over, and we will have mm-hmm. a recording. Uh, so, um, if you have to leave at the 45-minute mark, don't worry, uh, the recording will be up next week. Um, uh, this this person writes in that mum's currently in a retirement home environment. Uh, regarding uh, cognitive testing is being performed every six months. At what score level is there an indication dementia requires medical intervention and what might be the next step in care?
1: Mm-hmm. So... I think this is kind of a recurring theme, right? Mm. There's no set score um, that is a cutoff that says we need to do additional tests. It's really are the scores decreasing over time and are they decreasing uh, out of keeping what you'd expect for that particular patient based on their premorbid intelligence or um uh, intelligence quotient before they have education, special
0: senses, special, like to make yeah. sure that their their hearing is intact and vision's intact,
1: whether or not they are English as a second language and they're being administered, um, you know, this how test are, outside. How are the, they doing
0: functionally? Like, how are they exactly. in the retirement
1: home? So, it kind of um, all comes together. You can't just do a cognitive yeah. test and say, Great, we have big problems. If the cognitive testing is very low, then you're going to see changes in their day-to-day function and day-to-day life. They're going to be presenting with um, challenges in memory and complex thinking and tasks. So all of those things should be going together. And if they're not, it begs the question of you know, alternative diagnoses. I,
0: I, I think we've also, both of us have seen in the hospital setting, uh, people who put way too much stake in one yeah. cognitive screen. And, yeah. and let's say somebody's been actually doing okay, and all of a sudden they do Uh, one test turns out they have some other kind of infection going on Mm -hmm. but people will often read way too much into one you know low screening tool and then they'll be like well this person has dementia and they might actually have an urinary tract infection or something else.
1: So it's total care total history always come back to that.
0: Uh, Last question. glad to hear about motor skills this seems to be a big problem with my husband he was diagnosed with aphasia from dementia memory's not the biggest problem but just being able to communicate is huge
1: right and so this gets to be more uh, a bit more complicated there are so aphasias are problems with language and formulating words and so uh, stuttering halting effortful speech where people have breakdown in their grammar and Um, find it really challenging to communicate that would be a non-fluent aphasia and sometimes that goes with parkinsonian syndrome so obviously this is not the place for specific medical advice but you know if you're having problems with coordination and walking and you're having challenges with the language side of things there are specific diseases that uh, can cause that within the parkinsonian kind of framework and so being assessed by a neurologist or um a geriatrician with training in behavioral neurology or a neuropsychiatrist for these people. That's very yeah. important. So I would, if you don't have access to those people or haven't seen one, I'd really recommend that um, that you go and see one. Uh,
0: certain small strokes can also, depending Absolutely, on their location, yeah. can be mm-hmm. associated with aphasia syndromes, and uh, uh, also there are there's a subtype of frontotemporal dementia that can. Uh, cause aphasia early on. So quite a few different things that it might be.
1: And it's kind of the thing where if you woke up one day with it and all of those problems happen, then it'd be more likely to be a stroke. But if it's been a slow and gradual problem over time, and often people will experience the language challenges or difficulties before they get the movement problems or the movement problems before the language problems. But if it's a stroke, both should happen at exactly the same time. So We'll leave that with you.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks yeah. so much, everybody. This has been uh, just a, a great participation today. Please help us help you fill out the the surveys to tell us uh, other topics uh, that you have a hankering for. Um, As mentioned, you'll be able to access this recording uh, on iJerryCare.ca slash events, as well as recordings from our previous events. A reminder that our next event uh, will be February 27th. And uh, just a shout out and thank you to everybody. Uh, funding uh, as support has been provided by the Center for Aging and Brain Health Innovation, powered by Baycrest. Uh, we've also received support from the Jaris Center at Hamilton Health Sciences, McMaster University, the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation, the Alzheimer Society of Hamilton-Halton Region, and uh, the Division of E-Learning Innovation. Uh, and of course, I would be remiss if I didn't say that teamwork makes the dream work. So thank you very much for the McPherson Studio and our entire Division of E-Learning team. And we will see you February 27th. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to our website so you don't miss a thing. And if you didn't enjoy the episode, let us know how we can improve. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.